Hello and welcome back to Surf Splendor. This is your host, David Scales. We have an exciting show for you today with big wave surfer, um, surfing for change activist, Kyle Tierman. But before we get into my conversation with Kyle, I just wanted to update you that we've instituted a donation option on surfsplendorpodcast.com. So I know that you have heard Scott and I discuss that we would be introducing that. Well, it is official. It has been introduced. So if you go on to surfsplendorpodcast.com, there is a link in the menu for to click donate. And then it's just a real simple PayPal donation uh, if you would like to support this show. This show and all of its archives will remain free to everyone. There are no perks for donating to the show other than the warm feeling inside that comes with giving so generously. Um, the show will remain free and free for all. But after 140 episodes of Surf Splendor, it is about time that we figure out a way to monetize it. So donations is going to be the first step in that effort. And there's details on that link for how those donations, uh, where those money, where that money will go. And so you can read up on it there. And I'll be perfectly honest, I listen to far more podcasts than I have ever donated to. And so I totally understand if you don't donate. But if you do donate, consider that other listeners are not. So donate whatever you feel comfortable with. Um, there's actually an option when you open up the YouTube link to set a recurring monthly donation, which I recommend that might be the most efficient way to do this. So, I, I mean, if you did it for a reasonable amount, a small amount, let's say $5 a month, um, you probably wouldn't even notice that expense, but it would go a long way towards helping this show growing. And that's the thing. I mean, consider that you have 140 episodes in the archives that that donation is going towards, and then it's going towards a, a weekly show. But more importantly is um, it'll help this show to grow. I mean, the reality is if we are seeing some rewards from the hard work, we will have the opportunity to expand it in new ways, whether that's through more frequent shows or perhaps travel shows, perhaps live shows, perhaps events. I know I did a um, film screening uh, maybe about two years ago for Bella Vita where we rented out a theater in Long Beach and hosted a screening and that went really, really well. So maybe we'll be able to do more things like that. Um, introduce t-shirts. There's just all sorts of things that it opens up for us. So exciting. It's an exciting time. So anyway, surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate is the link. All right. So without further ado, I'm going to pitch to my conversation with Kyle Tierman. And um, we uncover, I mean, a, a lot of really interesting stuff. The kid is super, super interesting. I refer to him as a kid because he's 26, and to me now, that is young. That's a weird thing to say. Um, from the ages of 18 to 25, Kyle created and hosted this YouTube series called Surfing for Change, and he really was kind of um, the first surfer that I know of in, in the professional surf space who really took advantage of um, YouTube as a platform. He was 
He's kind of built his career on being a YouTuber, but he's done really amazing work through that Surfing for Change series. And he's transitioned out of that um, and kind of has new opportunities and endeavors with Patagonia, Discovery Digital Network. Uh, it's an expansion of what he did for with surfer, Surfing for Change. So exciting times for Kyle. Um, he's an interesting figure that I've paid attention to over the last, I don't know, eight years or so. And I would argue that even if you don't recognize his name, you probably saw his TED Talk that he did. It's We get into that in this show a little bit, but um, the biggest memory jog that I could provide for you is he's the only guy to have ever just delivered a TED Talk wearing a wetsuit. So that's Kyle. All right, so without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Kyle Tierman. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I'll be back at the end of the episode to sign us off. Thanks. Shamelessly going to document with a selfie stick along the way. What? I'm shamelessly going to document this with a selfie stick along the way. Oh no, no worries, man. Let's get get it out through the other channels. Um, just, if there's no shame, like, if there's one person you don't need to be embarrassed about <laughs> using a selfie stick in front of, it's fucking me. All right. <laughs> um, I do have no shame about it. I'm super into it. I just got into it like a month ago, though. I'm like a few years behind the selfie stick trend. Yeah, which only lasted for yeah. a short period. So, is there anything that you you don't want to talk about, or things that you, you swear on the podcast? Do you anything? Uh, anything's fine. fine. Okay. Anything cool. goes, and then of course I can edit as well. Okay. Um. So couple quick icebreaker first questions mm-hmm. before we get into origin story stuff how how long can you hold your breath first question so about a year ago i took um a performance free diving course it's a three-day course that happens um down in newport i took it with my friend uh, ricky whitlock uh and it was trained with this this guy. Um, our trainer was the guy who trained David Blaine to his 17-minute and four-second breath hold. Wow. Um, and the way the course works is you do one day of in-class um, workshops where you learn all about um, apnea. You learn all about what actually happens to the human body when you're underwater um, and you're experiencing hypoxia, which is okay. lack of... Um, or it's, it's the, the buildup of um, CO2 um, in, in your bloodstream. And it's, it's fascinating what happens to the human body when you're underwater um, because, I mean, basically what you get from the course is you can hold your breath a lot longer than you think you can. Okay. When you get that initial, I need to, to breathe, you're usually about halfway there okay. um, because your body's really good at, what's called blood shunting so it, it first you know your your fingers get kind of tingly because the blood is your your body is pushing all the blood to your brain and to your heart um your vital organs right so um your body's kind of built to be underwater for a lot longer than you think you 
you can. Okay. Um, so then the second day, uh, you get in the pool, and there are a few different types of courses. Um, one is for uh, for free diving and spearfishing, and that's where you're you're holding your breath under kind of optimal conditions, right? When you're going to descend, um, you have time to breathe up. But this course was specifically for big wave surfing, so they would put us in positions where we would have to do a bunch of push-ups, and then we would get thrown into a pool with a bunch of weights and see how long we could hold our breath with our friend kind of beating us up underwater, uh, which, I mean, cut your time down by a quarter, right, if you have a, a high heart rate. Um, but usually when you have a big wave that's going to land on your head, you're not, you haven't been able to breathe up for two minutes. So that was the course that I did. Um, and we did all these different techniques where you got a high heart rate, you did, and then we did also what's called a static apnea breath hold, which is where you breathe up for as long as it takes. Usually what you're doing is you're taking very slow low, deliberate exhales, because when you breathe, when you exhale slowly, your heart rate slows down. That's mm. why if you're ever getting ready for a big speech or a big thing, you want to take these slow, deep exhales. It helps slow your heart rate down. And then you take a few deep breaths out of the top of your chest. And then your final one, basically kind of like filling up a gas tank, you fill it up from your breath, your your belly to um, your lungs, and then all the way even you, you lift your shoulders and go, and then you just relax. Um, so we did those on the second day where it was like, all right, we've stretched beforehand. This is as, as far as you can go. And the longest that I was able to get to was four minutes and seven seconds. Um, and it was a really fun experience to be in um, safe conditions while holding your yeah. breath. Yeah. I mean, m most times, right, like, you just don't want to push it that hard because if you, you pass out, you pass out, and if there's no one around, you're going to die. Yep. Uh, yeah, you hear horror stories. Yeah, and I actually, on, um, so at the end of the second day, we did a few rounds, and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to fucking go for it. Like, th if there's ever a time to hold my breath for as long as I can, it's now. Um, and my buddy Ricky Whitlock was right there with me, and you're basically face down in a pool, and every 20 seconds, he taps you on your shoulder, and you have to lift up a finger and then put the finger down to show that you're still conscious. And I was like, I'm just going to push it. It goes f as far as I can. And I remember... Um, going through this kind of meditation technique where I, you relax your face, relax your shoulders, relax your your biceps, your elbows, just every part of your body you tell to slow down and relax. And uh, another technique that they, they use is to you really picture a place that you um, know for, in a familiar way, and it's like a calm place, whether it's like a childhood beach that you grew up on or like childhood home. And you kind of just walk yourself through that situation. Um, and it helps you take your mind off of the fact that you can't breathe. Yeah. Um, because it's, it is really uncomfortable, right? And you're getting all these like, um, and I was just like, I'm going through it. And, and, um, I hear him get to four minutes on the second round and, and, um, but it was kind of distant at that point. Like I was, I felt like I was doing this very I was doing a really good job, like going through my childhood home, and uh, all of a sudden, Ricky has pulled me up and he's pulled my mask off my face and he's slapping me, 
and, I, and I'm doing the um, what they call the samba, which is where I'm going, like you're not really inhaling and exhaling. And I looked at him and I was like, like, well, why did you pull me up? I could have gone longer. And him and everyone else in the course is like, dude, you just passed out. Wow. Um, you, you didn't respond to that last one. And it was, it was one where I didn't fully black out. I kind of browned out where I just wasn't responsive. And I, but did, your head was still in that meditative space. My head was still in that space, which was, which was kind of fascinating to me where like, I didn't have that. Um, I didn't know like this, Oh my God, I'm going to pass out. Right. Okay. I'm passed out. Yeah. Like, I felt like I was still doing it. Hmm. Your mind does these really interesting things, right? When you're holding your breath, uh, and a lot of times what it does, it takes you into this kind of euphoric and yeah. peaceful state. Uh, so uh, we got to hear some wild stories from people that are a lot better at holding the breath than I am. So, I mean, when I say yeah, I can hold my breath for four minutes, if you ask me to hold my breath right now, there's no way I could hold my breath for four minutes. I was in a course under optimal conditions. And it, it was one thing that was really amazing is how how fast it went, like, that skill got away from me when I wasn't practicing. Right. Because then I didn't practice for a couple months. And you know, you're, when you're surfing, you're not really holding your breath. You're like, you're duck diving, right? Yeah. Like bare, maybe for five seconds, you're underwater. And even, you know, when you're surfing to the end of the end of a wave, right. And you like fall on the end section and you are under for five seconds and you really, Oh my God, I almost died. Right. Like yeah. it, it, it was amazing how quickly that skill kind of got away from me. Whereas now there are some techniques that I'll try and use to get get back into those places. But man, if if you don't use it, you lose it. That's for sure. It's interesting talking about um, your head goes into a really weird space when you're holding your breath. I mean, I wonder how much of that is the actual holding of your breath or the meditation. Or then I also wonder how much overlap there is between the techniques required to hold your breath and the techniques required to practice meditation. Like there's actually, they're pretty similar, you know? Hundred percent. So, yeah. I mean, the fact that you can think about something right now and your heart rate will—I you know, mean, if you think about it, a hot chick that you have a crush on, your heart rate will start to speed yeah. up, right? If you start to think about some uh, peaceful willow that you grew up yeah, near, yeah. your heart rate will slow down. Like our thoughts have an immense power over our bodies that's for sure it makes me realize that like i mean you you went to the breath holding seminar for big wave surfing specifically right but realistically it has a lot more application for your life just in terms of general well-being and general health and would benefit a lot of things even if you're not going to go surf big waves there's something about um physical tests right that i think we really lack in our culture um like for me as a young man, like uh, it was actually one of those experiences that, um, man, like it was kind of profound for me just doing this three day course and like really pushing myself to, to as far to a point of like, I want to go as far as I can. Um, man, like we really lack that in our culture. And I think that that's why people are so attracted to, um, you know, figures like Shane Dorian and Mark yeah. Healy who are hunters and they're out there doing this man shit. It's like, because we don't have that anymore. And there's something so real and like tactile and just grounded about some of those experiences that, that you have, where you have to put yourself in those situations and see how far you can go because we live in this world of, social media and what do people think of us and you know anxiety it's like this it's almost like this constant eat like 
Wi-Fi of anxiety that everyone is just riddled with. Yeah. And um, there's something that that I notice. I mean, I'm I'm drawn to those types of people where I'm like, fuck, you just have like a kind of grounded centerness where those people are really good at shaking your hand and looking you in the eye most times. Right. If that makes any sense. It does. Well, I think, you know, dogs... You uh, domesticate a dog, and then you have to give it a Kong with peanut butter inside so they can dig for the peanut butter because it represents a former life of theirs where they had to hunt for their food. It's the same thing with humans, where we come from hunter-gatherers, and now our life is just so dang convenient. We don't need to hunt anymore, and we have this impulse to do things like that and to test ourselves. and to, So we're, we're drawn to that when other people do it. you know. Yeah, and ultimately, right, it's not even about the reaching the goal like we want to reach the goal but i mean it's, it's so cliche to say but it's real when you're actually doing it. like it is about this process and yeah being able to be comfortable with that conversation in your head yeah you feel a lot more alive doing that than you do sitting on the sofa you know that's for sure um let's get into your origin story real quick where'd you grow up how'd you get involved in surfing grew up right here in santa cruz california um you know, youngest of five, all my older brothers and sisters surf. You know, it's Santa Cruz town. We had a half pipe in our backyard. So I was skating from the age of six and started surfing when I was 10. Um, Were you competing and all that? Yeah, I started uh, doing the NSSAs um, with my friend Nat Young, who... Um, I've heard of him. You've heard of him. We've, we've <laughs> all heard of him. I mean, he he's... A, I mean, so Nat's mom, Rosie, yep. is this super mom who from the age of 11 would drive us down on the weekends to go compete in the gold coast NSSA, um, contest down at like sea street and, um, port Wainimi and all these little beach breaks. Uh, and I remember from like 11 years old, we, we went down there in our first contest and we were always super intimidated to surf with the down South kids because sure. they were like, we grew up surfing right-hand point breaks, and um, basically Nat uh, did too, but he would always kind of take these different routers, like, oh, no, let's go surf the left. Like, let's go surf these weird little beach breaks. And we'd always be like, no, I just want to go surf the lane every day and, like, sure. surf this right-hand point break. Hence, Santa Cruz surfers get really good at surfing right-hand point breaks, but yeah. you put them on a left-hand beach break, and they usually suck. But Nat took that extra little initiative to be like, I want to get good at surfing these other types of waves. And I remember we went down and we surfed a uh, contest at Newport beach. Mm-hmm. And by that time, um, Andrew Doheny was already, Andrew was like Andrew Doheny and Kaloha and Dino were, were already these superstar groms and no one had ever really heard of Nat. Cause Nat kind of got into surfing a little bit later sure. than most of those kids. Like he started surfing when I think he was like 10 as a, which is like late compared to a lot of those kids. And we went down, and I think I lost, like, second heat. And Nat just started destroying kids. And um, he ended up getting second to Andrew Doheny in the contest. And it was this moment when, like, all the Santa Cruz kids, because we would go down, like, Rosie would drive all of us down. And we were all like, like, whoa, like, I didn't know you could do that. Like, Mm. dude, you beat all the little down south kids. And it was like from that moment on, he was doing a contest every single weekend. And I, I so I went down. I would do the the NSSA Gold Coast um, contest with him. And um, but he was doing like Gold Coast. He was doing Southwest. It was literally every single weekend. His mom would drive him down 
to Central California or Southern California to surf these other kinds of waves, which now obviously it's paid off for them because kind of most Santa Cruz surfers, again, like they're really good at surfing one type of wave. Right. Um, but that was kind of a cool, cool experience to see, to grow up with him and, and, um, kind of see all of his success. So yeah, I, I did NSSAs, um, you know, until I was like 17, um, never really did too well in them. You know, I made some finals and that kind of thing, but, uh, I I think it actually wasn't, it, it, it like, it's weird surfing growing up. Like when you're a Grom, you kind of surf because your friends surf. Yeah. Like it's this social thing where it's like, well, oh yeah, you live in like, this environment. You live in this sure. environment. Like, you know, go to Mission Hill Junior High, Santa Cruz High School. It's like you hang out with surfers, you go surfing. Yeah. Um, and it, it was, it's almost a weird when I describe it. Like it was, I almost felt like surfing wasn't something that was inside of me. Like okay. I did it for the love of it on my own terms until I started going on some surf trips um, with my good friend Kyle Boothman, who's a, a really good surfer from Santa Cruz, a filmmaker. And we started going down to um, some of the beach breaks down in Mexico. And it was this like experience where I was like, holy shit, I didn't know that waves hit you this hard. Mm. And I didn't know that you could... like. I, I remember so vividly like on one of my first trips down there being like 15 or something like that. And surfing one of these beach breaks and just getting inside a barrel that I had never experienced before. Like, I, I was just getting these closeout barrels, but being like, holy shit, like, this is a whole nother, it's almost like a whole nother sport. Yeah. And um, from a skating background, like, I was always super into that, like, kind of just push it, like, going around. We would skate pools in the back in backyards of people's houses and, like, Skating has that very much like just go for it kind of attitude, and um, I felt like I really found that when I started traveling a little bit more. And from there on out, I was just like, "Oh, this is this is my jam! Like, I want to go around and get barreled." Yeah, well, um, I can relate to that. You know, I've grown up surfing, and I can relate to wanting to get barreled and getting bigger barrels and wider barrels. What I can't relate to is your interest in big wave surfing. And I mean, for listeners, there is a definable difference between surfing big barrels like that versus surfing Mavericks and proper big wave surfing. Um, What is your interest in big wave surfing? Like, again, I have zero interest in that. It's just a whole, it's almost a different sport, you know? So what was your, was it a transition from that into big wave surfing or what, what did that look like for you? And why is, it seems like you're almost more defined now as a big wave surfer in terms of your professional surfing career, you know? I guess. I mean, I think that part of it's just because Mavericks is right up the road from us. So we're always out there. Um, and there's always a ton of media at Mavericks. So that's where the photos get published. Um, I would say that I still, more than anything, like my highest highs come from a, a 10 to 12 foot, you know, barreling day at Puerto Escondido. I, I think that nothing beats that. Okay, cool. Um, I'm, but then again, I mean, just taking off on a big wave at Mavericks is, is pretty darn cool, especially if it's a good clean day, like who knew it could be so fun just going straight. Well, that's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if maybe it's because I grew up in Southern California and we don't have that wave near us that I was, is it just that if you grow up in this area, like everybody goes there when the waves get big and you're kind of, it's a, it's a cultural social thing or. I mean, I definitely think that there's, you are a product of your influences and your surroundings. And I mean, 
Anthony Tashnik lives on my street. All all these guys are going up. Tyler Fox is my housemate. So I think that a big part of it, like I guess that transition was the fact that Tyler is my housemate and he had some big boards for me. Uh, and it was kind of just like, well, cool, let's, let's go try it out. Um, and I definitely feel more comfortable at Mavericks than um, maybe I should. Okay. <laughs> like, I, I think that there's, there's something where I never really thought that I was going to surf big waves growing up when I was, you know, 12 years old going down to NSSAs with Nat. Um, but it, it's almost like this feeling of like, like, oh, I can do this. Like, this is something that I can do. And, and maybe it comes from that background of, like, alling off of 10 stairs when I was a kid skating and just that kind of, like, attitude that it takes to, sure. to like, take a slam and get back up and do it again. Um, and, again, it is, it's a whole other sport in terms of, like, figuring it out. Like, there, there's this element of just, like, so much more than the act of surfing the wave that I think is really cool. I've always been really fascinated with how swells work and where they hit the reef and where you want to be when you hit the reef. And, and you look at a lot of the best big wave surfers, like some of them are, are most of them are really talented, but they also have this other skill set of being able to read waves and read swells and be, just be there on the right days, um, Mm -hmm. that I'm fascinated by. Um, so, but then again, like I really do think that like, (laughs) surfing a 10 foot barrel is is amazing and it also takes a lot more skill to to surf a 10 foot puerto barrel than it does, does it? than it does to drop in on a wave at mavericks yeah i mean you get a lot of kooks out at mavericks people who are just kind of like oh cool i'm gonna sit on the shoulder and go in and you know take a photo uh which is really dangerous because i think that what mavericks is like it's it's all good until it's not yeah. Right. Like totally. that's, and uh, I'm not saying that it doesn't take skill to surf big waves, but you can dr- if you're in the right spot, like, and you're a decent surfer, you can dr- and the waves allowing it, you can drop in on that wave and and make it. A lot of times, there's definitely a difference between the way Greg Long surfs a big wave to, to your average Joe. But I think that if you put average Joe in a 12 foot Puerto barrel. There's no way they're going to make that. He's not going to luck into. They're not going to luck into it and and navigate it like. And he's not going to luck into an air reverse at lowers either. Totally, you know, like totally. Which is why I, I think that there, like, there are aspects of big wave surfing that it's kind of like it just makes it a little bit like, Ugh, like, gosh, that guy's doing it right. like too. And um, but again, it's like whatever you know. Everyone's who am I? I don't want to get all high and mighty. Like I'm. <laughs> No, but I gl- I'm glad you said it because I have no experience out there. But I do wonder that at times because I see those guys who will re- remain nameless here um, surfing big waves and then see them try to surf like a normal day at the local spot. And I'm like, that guy's a kook, dude. Like, yeah. what what is he doing? If he can surf out at Mavericks, I could surf Mavericks, you know? like Right. But obviously, like I said, I have no interest. And I never want to shame anybody who's out there because it's like, I'm not out there. Right. You know? Um, and it, at the same time, like, I mean, you, you look at the photos of a really crowded day out there and you're like, oh my God, I have no interest. But like, if you want to get one, like if you really are like, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to sit deep and I'm going to get one, like yeah. you can do it. Yeah. You, you just need to have that, that intent right. while going out there. And I think that a lot of people go out with the intent of, 
I'm just going to check it out and sit on the shoulder and see how it goes. And then you end up burning someone who's taken off deep. And yeah. I think that's kind of lame. Totally. Um, I want to transition a little bit into um, kind of what you're best known for. And I'll preface it with saying that like prior to this digital media age, there's really two ways to make a living as a professional surfer. There's competitive surfer and there's, you know, free surfer, but both of which were kind of um, reliant on the mainstream media and their compliance to promote that surfer's image. In this modern era, we've seen a lot of people take control of their image by creating their own content, distributing it themselves, and building their own audiences um, with unfettered access to them, you know, because of it. You've really embraced YouTube. And um, that's been your platform to communicate with your audience. Tell me about how that came to be and what are the pros and cons of that model? Um, I hate when when people talk about the image of like, it's, it's so true. Like, right. Like that everyone has their image and like, how are you defined? But like, I I mean, I'll, I'll tell you how it all came about. Right. It, It all came about that I was going on some surf trips when I was younger and um, I've always been naturally curious about the world. My mom ensured that. Uh, she's a documentary filmmaker. And she, oh, is she? Yeah. She basically said, look, Kyle, like, if you're going to go down to Chile, you better learn something about this country. Hmm. Not only because you're going there and it's important to learn, but as an American, America put Pinochet in power. I mean, people might not know this, but I mean, it was the Chicago Boys, which was basically an experiment of the United States to put Pinochet, who was um, the large, I mean, one of the most infamous dictators ever, into power in Chile. Um, you know, and then he ruled uh, for a number of years with an iron fist. Um, I mean, the amount of people who disappeared in Chile under his rule is astounding really? and there are still the scars of that on the country i mean if you're a musician back then playing a song that pinochet didn't like right. um you know you'd cut your hands off and it's a ve- it's a very brutal history and a lot and that doesn't mean that we need to go around with this like american guilt but i think that it's important as surfers to understand the places that we we travel to and that we do have an effect on them there is a history that Many times our country is is associated um, and directly involved with, and they're fascinating stories. So um, she kind of she gave me a few books on some early trips, um, and from there, man, it seriously just came from me asking one question to the next. I mean, we we as surfers find ourselves in these places that uh, they're really like not too many other people go to those parts of the world. Right. Right. Um, and there are fascinating stories that won't get told unless we tell them. So again, like I had basic background in filmmaking skills. I mean, like my whole family does filmmaking. Okay. My, my mom's documentary filmmaker. My dad's a filmmaker. My brother is a filmmaker. My uncles are f- filmmaker. Like I had no idea. It's just, yeah, everyone. Okay. Um, so I had basic skills in that, in knowing like, Oh, if you you know press the red button and put it up to someone's face because if you want to get good audio, put it real close. Um, and I, the first story that I did that probably still now 
kind of defines me was sure. was going down to Chile uh, with my friend Ryan Craig, who um, Chachi, he's a staff photographer at Surfer now, um, and I went down um, to Chile and and did this story on a proposed coal power plant that was going in on the beach in central southern Chile. Um, did some learning about how these projects of, of corporations happen. Um, and that a lot of times it's these financial institutions that are responsible for green lighting the projects. Same way if you need to get a loan for a house or a business, you need a loan from a bank. Big corporations need loans too. Um, so we did this little story about how this this um, proposed coal plant um, from a company called AES Jenner was being financed by Bank of America, that when you put your money into a bank, it doesn't stay there. Banks use your money to lend out. And it was kind of this this story of, of following your money upstream mm-hmm. and that you could be a surfer in Santa Cruz like I was. I had my money in, in B of A and that it could be going to financing a coal power plant down in Chile. Um, and I talk about how when you feel you have your money in a local bank or credit union, that money is lent out within your community typically and can be used to strengthen your community instead of having it be sucked out and used around the world. So that was in 2008, right when the financial collapse happened. It was the first time the American public was <laughs> paying any attention to money and where, where it uh, was going because all of their money was gone that year. Yeah. Similar At the same time, Ariana Huffington from Huffington Post was doing this campaign called Move Your Money, encouraging people to okay. get their, their money out of local banks. So it was this perfect storm of like me being this 18-year-old surfer kid uh, – who told this story. Um, you know, Chachi did a good job taking photos along the way. So we had, um, had access to other media and we released it. And like a lot of people saw the movie. A lot of people started moving their money and, uh, man, I just, I just ate that up. Like I I felt, um, like it was such a, just so much more important to be doing that. Um, not to say that you can't also surf. I couldn't surf along the way, but, um, did some sick backside blow tails in that video. Right. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, um, surfing, right. And if you really want to dedicate your life to surfing, there's really only so much you can talk about Yeah, I and agree. It, it can become pretty one dimensional. Uh, if you don't maintain curiosity and continue to ask those questions. So from there, I started this YouTube series called Surfing for Change, um, where we w- where I would travel, um, usually on a sh- shoestring budget. Um, you know, would pull some money together from my sponsors, Patagonia and Sector Nine, who are both mission based companies. And they're like, "Sure, we'll we'll like get you a plane ticket uh, to go here." And you know, I'd roll into J-Bay with my selfie cam and be like, hi, I'm Kyle. I'm at, there's a proposed nuclear power plant at J-Bay. Let's talk about nuclear power for six minutes. Or, you know, I went to Indonesia uh, with my brother, who I said was a filmmaker, and, and we did a story called Indonesia Trash Tubes, which is about um, Bali's trash epidemic. And we've all seen those images of guys yeah. getting shacked yeah. in like, that, you know, green, beautiful water, except for the fact that there's candy wrappers yeah. Getting sucked up in the barrel with the guy. Yeah, that that Zach Noel photo is amazing. Yeah, um, and then so I did that for for a number of years. Covered everything from the GMO protests in Hawaii 
to the importance of open watersheds in Baja, um, to really everything that I was curious about. Like I, yeah. I have this this strong belief that you can learn everything through anything. Hmm. And what I mean by that if, is that I knew that I was interested in surfing. I knew that I was interested in traveling. I mean, I would I would go on these trips and have my mind blown. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that if I just asked a few questions, it would get me to some interesting places. Yeah. So people always ask me, like, well, how did you come up with this? Or that? I was like, what? I mean, you, I had the opportunity to get these little micro degrees in all these subjects. Yeah. Like, I can tell you about plastic pollution now. Um, I can tell you about this, the state of GMO, um, GMOs in Hawaii. Like, and that's, that's just fun for me, man. Mm-hmm. Like if we, the second we stop learning, we start dying. And I would guess that a lot of your listeners are those types of learners, right? Like po- typically people who listen to podcasts are these voracious learners. And yeah. like, for me, I'm that same way, man. Like I, I get so much value out of podcasts. A lot of the stories that I've done have just been from conversations with people listening to podcasts um so i did the surfing for change series for for a number of years and then same same but different kind of transitioned this uh past year to working as a correspondent for discovery digital networks um so that's their online arm um doing a lot of ocean stories so this year i've had the opportunity um to go down um we got one that's coming out that i hope people really dig uh it's called hunting wild pig to save coral reef Hmm. so we went to hawaii uh on the big island which is where this this past el nino winter one of the largest coral bleaching events um the the largest coral bleaching event in recorded history happened so coral one in four marine organisms live in association with coral. It's the Amazon rainforest of the ocean, um, and it's really important that we keep it alive because it's where all of the, the fish live and breed. So what it, coral is also this kind of um, drama queen, in, in a sense, because hmm. it needs very specific conditions to thrive. It needs specific water temperatures. It needs clear water so that it has access to sun, sunlight so that it can photosynthesize. What gives coral its color is um, this single-celled organism called zooxanthellae. So zooxanthellae is what um, basically allows it to grow. It's what gives it its color. And when coral is hit with poor living conditions, um, for example, the water gets too hot for too long. For whatever reason, the zooxanthellae will leave the coral. And that's what you see. That's what people refer to when they talk about coral bleaching. So that's the white coral that is, um, it starts to slowly break down. As waves come in and swells hit the coral, it starts to, to break. And ultimately, the fish habitat um, is destroyed after a number of years. It's a slow process, which is why it's hard to tell the story because it's you don't necessarily get those visuals. Like, yeah. like fish will still live in bleached coral for a certain amount of time. Bleached coral can also also has this grace period to be able to to come back. Okay. But this last winter in Hawaii, um, a lot of coral got bleached, um, and on the Big Island specifically. One of the main factors of coral being able to come back is its its ability to be in clear water because coral needs clear water for sun sunlight to photosynthesize the coral. 
And one of the main reasons that a lot of the coral is not coming back is because these hooved animals, wild pig and goat specifically, will um, destroy these watersheds. They'll they'll dig up vegetation and they'll root around for um, for shrubs and grubs. And what happens then is that in these watersheds, when Hawaii gets these heavy rains, is that there's no soil retention. It's all this kind of like loose, churned up soil. And if you've ever been to Hawaii, you've seen it. These huge mud plumes go out into the ocean and it basically blankets the coral and suffocates it. So right now there's there's um, a huge initiative to fence off these sensitive areas so that native vegetation can return. Um, so we got to go out and um, we went out on a boat with um, with NOAA Div- Division of Aquatic Resources and we sampled coral from various areas and we saw it. like there's some of the coral has come back. It's this you know vibrant um, you know colorful coral and then in other areas where there's you know, just up from watersheds, there's sediment that covers it, and it hasn't come back, and it's it's this graveyard of coral. Now, then we got to go on a pig hunt, which I've never gone on before, but um, Mark Healy actually told me, he's like, you need to meet up with this guy, Justin Lee. Justin Lee is, check him out on Instagram, he is one of the most badass humans on planet Earth. He's a professional spear fisherman, professional hunter, like, constant com- comedy hour, hmm guy and he took Is us he on based on the big island he's, yeah he's a hawaiian he's, he's based okay. on the big island and he took us out on on a pig hunt um and it was a, such a wild experience experience for me man because i'm what just does he this, hunt with a bow okay. so we went out on two hunts we, we went out in the evening um with a bow uh and he got one like i would say maybe like 30 minutes into the hunt we're like we're running around you're going through this kind of like Vietnam style, yeah. like, you know, six foot grass, like running through areas that you would never run through. I mean, it's hard. Like these things aren't just cruising, like they're, they're hiding and you have to go either at dusk or at dawn. So we went at dusk and, um, we saw one, he scattered it. Um, it was a clean shot, got it, dressed the pig and, um, and we carried it out. Now the next morning they were like, well, we we want to see you get one, Kyle. So I was like, these things are they're big. Like it's a the one he got was like a hundred and sixty pound animal with these razor sharp teeth, and the things move fast, like fast. And I'll I'll tell you another kind of funny story. <laughs> this little anecdote is that so pig are they breed like bunny rabbits. A female um, pig, it's called a sow, um, is sexually mature at one year old, and they have three breeding cycles in a year, and they can have um, six to ten babies every breeding cycle. Dang. So you can have, you have to take out 70% of pig populations every single year for them to just maintain steady numbers. Got it. So the pig that Justin shot... um, was a boar and it was chasing a sow that was in heat. So <laughs> he gets the pig and uh, he flips it over and he's like, so the reason this guy didn't see us is because it, it was ready to yeah. jump this lady. And he's like, and all right guys, like you might want to turn the cameras off, but you got to do this. Uh, 
before we carry it out, otherwise it's gonna get all over you. Oh no. And he grabs the pig's cock and he no. shoots a load out. And everyone on Discovery seems like, oh man! And I'm just like, oh man! And he's like, yeah man, like, otherwise Kyle, you would carry this thing out and it would just get all over your pants. Oh my god. <laughs> so Who discovered that initially? I don't know who <laughs> discovered that one initially, but... Um, Something Wild. that's not typically talk about talked about in um, in the hunting world. I, I just looked at the camera I'm like, see, their breeding cycles are astounding. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys got all so, that. So we got, all- yeah, we got all that. I don't think that they they put that part in the uh, final piece, right? But, but uh, that's for the DVD extras. That's for the DVD extras. Yeah, that's for the X-rated version. <laughs> for, um, so then, so then the next morning we. Uh, we went out with dogs because another form of hunting is you, you go around with dogs and the dogs will sniff out the pig and they'll they'll corral the pig. Basically, you can get a little dog that can corral and kind of confuse a, a massive boar. And then what you're supposed to do is you pick up the hind legs. You, you get it. You pick up the hind legs. You flip it over and you, you um, get it in the heart with a knife. So they gave me the knife and they're like, all right, Kyle, like, you're up. I'm like, shit like were you up for it i was i was up for it i mean i was up for it but yeah i was up had you ever killed an animal before um i i'm fish you go spear fishing yeah a little bit different right? it's a little different um i was tripping i was definitely nervous and we ran through the jungle for like four hours and the dogs got on a few pig scents but we never got one. Oh, okay. So I have yet to kill a pig, but um, I actually just got a bow um, because in Santa Cruz, they're, they're a pig here. And uh, it's something I'm interested in. I, Dude, again, it's... When I've looked at Shane Dorian stuff and like yeah. listened to him, and it makes me interested in it. Yeah. You know? I mean, if, if we're eating meat, that's the best meat that you can get. Is, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the most honest. Um. And I have no qualms about that. Yeah, I mean, if you want to look at a few documentaries like Cowspiracy, I don't know if you've ever seen that. No. It's, it's a, an eye-opening documentary to the meat industry. Yeah. Um, and basically that, like, if we don't solve the meat crisis, we're fucked. Yeah. Because right now, one of the biggest environmental uh, issues happening, I think, globally right now is the Amazon rainforest is being cut down um, for cattle grazing massive amounts of clear cutting. Um, and it's probably the most dangerous place in the world to be an activist right now because there are these tribes that live in the Amazon and, and loggers will come in and, and destroy the rainforest and, and they'll just fucking kill them. Like if you stand up there, I mean, there was a story a few months ago of a, of a nun down in Brazil getting killed, um, just getting offed because there's that much money in it. And yeah. Brazil is now exporting their meat to the United States. Vice just did a story on it on their latest HBO season i highly recommend checking it out um but it's it's one of those things that we really need to figure out and i think that hunters are a perfect group to a like you know they're ones that are getting their own meat and two they're they are really fighting for open space more than most people they're the ones that are putting the money out to have open space be available when you get a hunting license that money goes to um 
restoration of the land. Right. It goes to yeah. keeping it open. There, there's a great story on um, Radiolab called The Rhino Hunter. I recommend anyone check it out. It's one of the best stories they've ever done. But it's all about this guy who's going to hunt an endangered black rhino in Namibia uh, for $250,000. And it's kind of like the, the moral um, plight of, is it is it morally okay to hunt this endangered species if that money is going to go to right. land restoration and preservation of the species. Interesting. Yeah, not an easy an- thing to answer. Yeah. Um, they do a great job, too, with their podcast. Um, well, <clears throat> you covered a lot of my questions, actually, through some of what you've said. I want to chat about filmmaking real quickly. It, this feels like the era of documentary. I didn't know that your family had such a long history in it. But it really does, because there was always amazing documentaries when I was growing up um, for in the previous decades. But I didn't feel like there was a adequate platform for them to be seen, you know, like they weren't in the local movie theaters that I was going to. And then maybe I'd be able to find it at a video store, but often not. Um, but now with Netflix, of course, it's like half of Netflix is populated by documentary. Um, obviously, you've utilized YouTube to great success. I wonder what... How much of it was just that it was the right medium to tell your stories versus did you look up to filmmakers growing up? Who were your influences as a filmmaker? What are your aspirations now moving forward? Do you have feature length things in mind? What? what? Yeah. Big question. Yeah. Um, Filmmaking influences maybe? Yeah. Well, I would say that – I was influenced a lot growing up by um, Vice, the media outlet. Um, one of my good friends, Kaj Larson, who grew up on my same street, is uh, a war correspondent for them. He has a number of segments on their latest HBO series. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that it was one of those things where I... It gave young filmmakers like myself permission to just go out with a camera and get in the shit and press the red button and see what we got in a way that um, I kind of was just growing up in this time where like, whoa, you could do that and then you could record it to this platform called YouTube. Like I I had no real idea about the scale of how many people can see a video of yours if you go onto YouTube. And, I mean, it's grown. You've helped grow it, to be honest, because it wasn't that many initially, and now it's insane. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that it, it... I mean, I have a lot of filmmaking influences. Right. Um, Morgan Spurlock is one of them. He's the guy who did... Um, Super Size Me. Super Size Me, and he's done Inside Man. It's a new, new CNN series. Uh, and... He's selfie sticking while we're podcasting. Yeah. So, so many multi, multimedia. Um, yeah, other filmmakers. Um, Jaheen Nujum is one. I don't know mm-hmm. if I'm pronouncing her name right, but she did one called uh, Control Room, which was about the Iraq War yeah. uh, from Al Jazeera's perspective um, while they were getting bombed in Iraq. Uh, she did one called The Square, which is about the... Um, the Arab Spring yep. in Egypt. There's an Academy Award I was an winner Academy Award w- uh, winner, nominated. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. What I, are your aspirations for it? Uh, aspirations for, for myself? For filmmaking. Do you plan to do... Um, Longer ex- stuff. Yeah, or expand stuff? beyond well, YouTube? I mean, I've had a lot of fun uh, 
just in the past year working on a few of these stories with discovery because it's it's a level of support that i've yeah. never felt before like i mean it, you know for a while it was it was kind of like just a couple of my friends and i uh just going around not really knowing what we were doing like my good friend kyle boothman who got me into surfing you know was one of them um, my buddy andy who's an editor down the street and we would kind of just go out and be like all right well we're gonna see what we get and come back with it and we you know try to put it together yeah we'd mess up we'd mess up a hundred times before kind of figuring out that there is a formula of like all right if you want to tell the story of um of world hunger like do it through a family it's like this idea of telling the macro through the micro like show the universe on a blade of grass kind of idea um where i started realizing like oh the more personal i can make it the more universal and um and that's the kind of stuff that I really like. I, I, I mean, I've, I'm starting to get better. Uh, like, and it's kind of going to wrap around to your question of like my aspirations within filmmaking. Is like, I think that I'm starting to finally figure out what it is that I actually like to do. Hmm. For a long time, I was saying like, oh, well, I like to filmmake and like I like to surf. Like, those are both true things, but they're so broad. Like, sometimes I like surfing. I like surfing, but sometimes. I, I hate surfing, you know, like sometimes surfing is exercise. Sometimes surfing is an exercise in patience. Filmmaking, you know, sometimes I like editing, but really what I like doing is this. Like I really enjoy having a conversation with you, an honest conversation um, and just seeing where it goes and then coming back with that. So, I mean, my latest endeavor is that I'm starting a podcast and purely from that interest in just having conversations, because I think that one of the most powerful things that we can do in media is, is give honest testimonials, Mm. right? Just you or me giving my honest story, I think is more influential than all the bells and the whistles that come along with a lot of filmmaking. Yeah. So I definitely still enjoy this, the style of that kind of like verite, just get in the situation, ask some questions. Yeah. Uh, but I also am really enjoying the kind of support of like having a producer, having a writer to be, to be like, oh yeah, great. Like we're, you know, here, we're going to help you along with this script, you know, having an editor. But then again, like I'm having to deal with some of fears of like giving up some control for the you first do. time right like for, yeah. with surfing for change i had 100 percent control all the time like i i could say whatever the fuck i wanted and i had control in the edit room and it was my piece but it was as only it was only as good as i could make it mm-hmm. right and i had I, i'm again blessed to be surrounded by a really talented group of friends um, in the Santa Cruz area who are filmmakers, but there is something to be said about getting into that bigger pool, totally. which, which I feel like I finally jumped into. And even though I'm giving up some control, um, the pieces are getting better. Yeah. And then I now have this, this podcast that I'm coming out with where it's like, we were talking a little b- bit before where it's like, it's unedited. It is just yeah. raw conversations, which I also enjoy. And I think that over the next couple of years, the goal would be come out with some kick-ass pieces. We have a few coming out that I've, that I shot, uh, this last year with discovery. One is on, um, the BP oil spill. We went, went out to Louisiana and did a story on that. Um, and another was down in Chile that we shot a number of months ago on this, uh, indigenous conflict happening in Southern Chile called the, the Mapuche. Uh, so the Mapuche are 
an indigenous tribe that um, live in southern Chile. And um, in the basically the late 1800s, they were colonialized and European settlers came in. A lot of their land was taken. Um, and just now they're demanding their land back. Mm. The, what's happened as a result is you know, the government of Chile has put a lot of anti-terrorist laws in place where they can detain Mapuche without charge. Um, really egregious human rights abuses happening down there. And uh, these kind of third-generation European settlers who are now Chilean farmers are kind of caught in the, the middle of it um, because it's, it's really um, big logging um, industry down there, sure. so they took a lot of the land. The Mapuche, uh, the Mapuche want the land back. They're taking it back in some cases violently. There have been cases of them like burning down houses and logging trucks, um, then getting detained. And the the Chilean families, you know, are now kind of caught in the middle of it. So we got to go down there. I actually got to go down with my girlfriend. She she shot it. Uh, and we did a story on that that's now being edited up cool. in San Francisco. But just like, dude, those kinds of stories of getting into a yeah. world where I get to be completely ignorant to the situation and be like, wow, I get to, it's my job to ask these stupid questions um, is something that I just freaking love, man. So if, if I can combine surfing, being, you know, being able to go out on these adventures that I love doing just for the sake of going and getting barreled or getting some some fun waves big waves with my friends um continuing to tell stories that i think are important and pushing my own filmmaking yeah and with this new form of of just kind of long form conversations um seeing where this experiment goes i think that i'll i'll be a happy camper well i'm a huge fan of um filmmaking and documentary as well and and surf films specifically like i grew up watching surf films and spent every extra 30 bucks i had buying them you know oh, yeah surf videos and but i've lamented it as i've in the last decade i i guess that the medium hasn't really changed that much and it hasn't really evolved where i as a human and as a surfer have evolved into a more nuanced human being and like it's still just surf porn. The surfing's better. The cinematography's better. The technology of the cameras and stuff are better. So it's a it's a more sophisticated degree of what – not even sophisticated. It's just a better degree of what it was before. But the, the formula hasn't really changed for a lot of the filmmakers. And so I've lamented that. Um, but that's why I've enjoyed some of your stuff. And – there's been a couple others that I would name. Jason Baffa has done some interesting stuff. This um, film, I don't know that you saw it come out on Red Bull a couple weeks ago. Let's, Let's be, be frank. frank. Did you see it? Oh, my buddy Frank. It's so yeah. good. So I it's interviewed so him. so good. Go see Let's Be Frank. I, I went down there for the premiere because Frank's, oh, Frank's a good friend of mine. And um, damn, they did a good job so on that So good, one. right? Yeah. It's just different. It shows that if you do something different – people are hungry for it yeah. i mean what you're doing with this podcast you, you're you're taking a new medium and you're just exploring it right yeah. and people are digging it because it's not there before like people don't want the the silly sound bites they want something that's real or they want something that that's that's just like authentic in some way well right? well so i interviewed frank and the filmmaker and i had yeah. him on the podcast and um was telling them the same thing that you're saying right now is like I don't need more surfing, dude. Like what I need is story. Like as I've become a more interesting human being, as I've gotten older, like 
I just want something of interest. I want some depth. And to be honest, I think it's just story. And so I think the success of a lot of the things that you've done is that you've tapped into stories and human interest and individuals. And and sure, there's surfing tangentially related to these topics. But dude, if I want to watch A-plus surfing, like I've got clips on Instagram right now that just happened yesterday at South Beach in Miami with Hurricane Matthew and then last night at the Quick Pro France because I didn't stay up for that. So like it's at my fingertips. I don't need you to go out and then produce something and months later show me, you know? Right. But what I do need you to do is what you're doing. Right. I see that a lot, man. Like I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too because so surfing is this kind of unique sport, right? Where it's you can you can become a pro surfer or be relevant in the surfing world without having to be one of the best surfers right, right? because it is such a lifestyle driven sport i'm i'm one of those guys right um i mean nat surfs circles around me when we go when we go out to the lane i mean it's it's no secret um but because it is such an interesting sport in in the sense that we get to go to these places, we get to be be involved in these stories that no one else has access to, yeah. you can still um, make a pretty darn cool life for yourself. Totally. And it, it's, it's sad for me to see like a lot of young pro surfers who aren't going to be the next John John, but feel like they don't have anything to offer right. because... Their their air versus are only two foot instead of five foot, um, but man, like I, I mean, I think that one of the one of the best podcasts out there is Tim Ferriss's podcast, mm-hmm. and one thing that he focuses on, and and all of his guests talk about this is like, dude, focus on your strengths, like don't try and focus on what you're bad at, and make that better. Understand what it is that you're good at, and and leverage that, right. And um, I find that m- most of the, m- the successful people that I've met, I'm um, surrounded myself with, have figured that out. They yeah. they're self aware and they know what it is that they're good at, and know and what their limitations are, and they know what their limitations are. Yeah. Absolutely, like it's what's the the saying? Like if you if a fish judges judges itself uh, its entire life on its ability to climb a ladder, it'll think it's stupid. Yeah, right. Like that's well, it's I've. I'm I'm learning a lot about that at this phase of my life. Now I'm in my 30s and yeah. it's like learning how to delegate to other people. Learning that I'm not great at X, Y, and Z, but I'm really good at A, B, and C. So quit trying to fix X, Y, and Z. Delegate that out, dude. There's people. And the other thing, I, I feel like you're probably in the same boat where it's like we have people around us who want us to succeed and they want to help us. And they want – they're like our supporters and champions – Rely on them. Allow them to help. Allow them to, you know, because, um, yeah, dude, we have all the resources in the world. Living in California, with it's like if you don't rely on those things, then ask for help, man. Yeah. So, like one of the greatest things that I stumbled upon um, when I was young, and I think that it really made the difference between like making that first video down in Chile and then being like, all right, now I'm going to go do something that I hate for the rest of my life and like actually making that decision to to push forward and be like no this is something that i can kind of forge a career in um was my decision to ask people for help yeah and i i mean i've done that so many times like dude i i remember when i was doing a story in hawaii it was one of my very first ones um 
about plastic pollution. I saw Jack Johnson walking down the street and I freaking cornered him and I was like, hey, will you please be in this movie? Like, it's about plastic pollution that, you know, I'm an 18 year old kid and I want, I didn't really know what I was doing. And he was like, absolutely. Sure. Like, I'd love to help you. Um, I mean, same with like Annie Leonard. She's, uh, just really high profile environmental activist. She made the story of stuff series, which is great. You can check it out on YouTube. Um, she's now the, the executive director of Greenpeace. She has helped me so much with contacts, with, um, just learning how to navigate the field, learning what landmines are out there and how not to step on them. And, right. and ultimately, man, it's like, it's, it is, um, makes you feel really good when you can help someone out. Yeah, totally. People, um, and that's the thing. They want to help. They want to help. You know? Yeah. So that's, I mean, that, interesting. I just, well, it, the, uh, along ahead. your point of like, um, know what your strengths are. Some of the most successful people we know and people that Tim Ferriss has interviewed and stuff, these kind of, world changers and industry leaders and peak performers even like steve jobs the guy was just an orchestrator you know like he brought on programmers and surrounded himself but he knew his skill set was conductor yeah and now i need a violinist and i need a whatever and then i'm going to implement those people which those roles are actually more important than the conductor role but you know yeah um, and, and I think that what happens a lot of times too is people overload themselves with work and then they become so busy yeah. that they can't do any one thing really well. Right. Um, there's a, a good book that I just read um, by a guy named Tim Kreider called We Learn Nothing. And he has this, he just kind of has this dark humor when he talks about his view of the world. Um, and he has this whole chapter called Busy, uh, or it's called Lazy, a Manifesto. <laughs> and uh, it's all about, how when you ask someone how they're doing now, they say busy. Like, how are you doing? Like, oh, busy. I'm like, crazy busy. So busy. And it's like, well, why? What, what is it that you... I think that partly it's this, like, self-important thing. Like, oh, my sure. God, I'm so busy. Like, I have no time for anything. But, man, I know some of the most productive people I've ever met, and they don't say they're busy because they're so good at delegating to other people that they're able to focus on what it is that they're really good at and be financially successful, mentally successful, spiritually successful, physically successful. Um, and the people who don't fucking drown, man. And people confuse or trick themselves into thinking that busy means productive. Right. And it totally isn't. Right. Um, let's get back on track a little bit here. Um, I want to talk about fitness just a little bit, especially being a professional surfer and surfing big waves. It seems like professional surfers and especially big wave surfers have a more, much more committed, but also comprehensive approach to health and well-being nowadays where it's not just focus on diet and exercise. You're also focused on recovery, focused on mental wellness, focused on life balance, you know, um, what does your, and meditation or whatever, what does your fitness program look like? Um, changes all the time, but, um, I've definitely learned a lot about myself and learned a lot about wh how far I can and cannot go. Um, kind of, you know, when I, I tend to jump into things head first and go into the deep end. So when I was like, I want to start surfing Mavericks, I'm like, I'm going to order four big wave boards and be out there every day that I can and, you know, train like crazy. And I, I see that a lot with a lot of young big wave surfers and it kind of creates this burnout effect where you'll see someone get super psyched on on it for a little while and then burn out. Um, 
and I've really had to kind of tone back and be like, well, what is it that actually keeps my love of the ocean alive? I think that everything that I'm doing, like ultimately it's, it's about keeping myself in the water. Yeah. And if, if you are in the water a lot, you're going to be in good shape. You're going to be in rhythm with the waves. Like we all know what it feels like to not surf for a few weeks and get back on your board and you feel like a kook. Like just keeping in that rhythm. And surfing is one of those sports where it's always hard. Like <laughs> skating, I cannot skate. F- I can take like three months off of skating, get back on a ramp, and I feel like I'm right back where I was oh, okay. because it's the same ramp. Yeah. But surfing, if I don't surf for like a week and a half, I'm like, dude, I forgot how to do this. And it takes me three sessions to feel like I'm getting back to, to surfing okay. Um, so a lot of what I've been doing lately has been figuring out ways to stay in the water every single day. Uh, whether that's going on an ocean swim, whether it's, uh, body surfing and hand planing. We have some cool little beach breaks around here that I have some fun at, um, long boarding. It's all right. It's all right. Um, but just anything to, to keep my like stoke for the ocean alive, um, has been a big part of, my training, if that's what you want to call yeah. it. Um, I also, I mean, I live with Tyler Fox, who's really kind of fitness, fitness junkie for lack of a better word. Um, but we do a lot of, um, stairs. There's a, a place just down the sh- street where there's a big staircase, um, stairs and jump rope, um, and just keeping that kind of cardio alive. Uh, spear fishing whenever I can really enjoy, I'm really enjoying that because it's the perfect additive sport to surfing it's like yeah. oh my god it's dead flat great day to go yeah. to go spear fishing um, so staying in the water as much as possible and I just got a um, uh, membership at the rock climbing gym oh, I, don't, okay. I don't know if that's going to help big wave surfing at all but it's uh, it's been really it fun like I, I you know I, th- I think that there is also this element of like putting yourself in situations where you're scaring yourself a lot that is really good for training to surf big waves um, because it's something that we lack, right? Yeah. Like going to work, being on the computer, checking emails, like you're just not, you don't have to have that focus on like, all right, I got to focus on my breath and and really kind of have that self-talk going. Yeah. And um, dude, like I went, I go down to Pacific Edge, which is the local rock climbing gym, scare the shit out of myself, even though I know that if I fall, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Um, just that feeling of having to hone my breath in Mm -hmm. has been really fun. Um, so I do that and I try and sweat a lot. Mm. Um, I I listened to a good podcast, um, with Dr. Rhonda Patrick. She's, uh, just this fantastic, um, doctor wellness coach. And she was on Joe Rogan talking about how there was this long term, long term study. Squirrels are everywhere. (laughs) This guys are having a blast. Squirrels trying to have They're fun. They're climbing in, through your wetsuits. <laughs> squirrels trying to have fun in the backyard. Um, rats with fluffy tails. Um, so, so Dr. Rhonda Patrick was uh, doing a podcast um, on how <clears throat> it was a long-term study based on that if you got in a sauna three times a week, you're likely to live um, 
X amount of years longer. Fascinating. Um, because what heat and cold exposure do is they activate your FOXO3 cells, I believe they're called, which are kind of your anti-aging cells. So if you ever see someone who's like 100 years old and they've been smoking their whole lives, like chances are it's because they have overactive FOXO3 cells. So um, I've been going down the street and I've been doing hot yoga and hot Pilates because I've can barely touch my toes and I'm super tight. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a combination of things, man. And, and seriously, uh, like uh, it's about staying in the water. And for me, it's about having fun and just keeping that, that zest alive and sweating a lot and doing things that are new. Have you explored cold water therapy? Yeah. Or no, just I'm, cold therapy. Well, every morning I, I run down the street and I jump in the ocean. Um, with trunks on? With trunks. Yeah. No way. Yeah. So that's been, um, fun. Well, Wim Hof inspiration there. I don't go in super long. I'll usually just run down the street, jump in the water, force my girlfriend to come with me. It's always a good, good little way to start a fight in the morning. (laughs) But, um, come on, babe, let's do it. No. (laughs) Good news is it's hard to be mad after that. Like it shocks your system so much that all the anger is gone. Well, I've never seen something that so consistently puts you in a better mood and makes you feel like, feel like you're in a, feel like you're in a good place and so consistently you resist it you're like i know this is really good for me but i really don't want to do this right now it's a challenge every single time yeah but i mean this morning i before this podcast ran down the street um got in the ocean caught three waves on my longboard came trunks Mm -hmm. crazy um get into some wrap-up questions real quick since we're running out of time what does your current travel schedule look like? What's next on the docket? Um, I'm here for the next little while. Cool. I've uh, I'm been in this place where I've been running around doing all these stories um, and gathering a bunch of podcast interviews. So I have them all banked, and a lot of the, the stories are being edited right now, the, the documentaries, and I'm kind of getting in a place to launch the podcast. And it's really hard to do a lot of that on the road, so it's been f- fantastic being at home um, and just kind of getting into a little rhythm of productivity and training and surfing and spearfishing. So I'm going to be around the Santa Cruz area for a little while, which I'm so happy to say. Good time of year, too, right? Good time of year. We got a good swell coming. Um, I try and save my traveling for spring and summer. Yeah. Um, and then I'm home for, for winter. Cool. Yeah. Um, you talk about, or you've talked about, I don't even remember where I saw it, but you've talked about the key to happiness is being in service, you know, where, what are you in service of right now? Um, it's a good question. I think that more than anyone, I mean, I, I have a number of issues that I'm passionate about bringing to light. Um, but I think that the I've been asking myself this question a lot. And I think that right now, the thing that I'm most excited about, and I think that the thing that I can offer people most is um, tools for them to um, not be victims to themselves. And whether that is a... Um, a tool of a morning routine that can really help. I think that these little changes that we make in our daily lives can lead to bigger changes, which can lead to ultimately like the kind of social and political change that I'm passionate about. Um, and secondly, just bringing stories forward that, 
people find um, interesting. You know, I mean, I, I cannot tell you, and and a lot of the service that I, I feel like I can provide is what I get most. And over the past year, after I was doing a bit of reflecting, I'm like, man, it's it's podcasts. Like I, I listen to so many podcasts, and they've fundamentally changed my life with testimonials from people who have gone through these life experiences. They've, they've gone through rough times they've, and they've developed tools to get through them. So if I can bring people on who I, who I have access to and have these conversations, um, that's something that I find could be really helpful because they've helped me a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and figuring out how to ask really good questions. Yeah. Asking, asking better questions, I think is, is, um, something that can change the world that'll serve you well as a podcast host for sure yeah <laughs> um the final question that i ask everybody um who's interviewed is just what was the last board that you rode uh last board that i rode was this morning i wrote a um where is it some big 10 foot single fin um that could probably take someone's head off if placed in the wrong wrong zone um and i wrote it this morning on some little one foot waves who shaped it who did shape that you know like so we have a bunch of surfers in this house and we kind of just have this revolving door of boards and i have no idea who shaped the board or who it belongs to but it's kind of those things where like if it's in our backyard we have license to use it so I think someone just dropped it off here and never <laughs> remembered. Yeah. We're sitting in the backyard overlooking the quiver right now. Um, uh, I'll take a photo of it and post it on Instagram at Surf Splendor, of course. What? Um, who do you normally get boards from? Um, I get some boards from Fletcher Chenard. Um, that's the Patagonia boards, uh, which have been working really good. They're really strong. And I got a couple good shortboard models under my feet right now. Um, and I've been getting my big boards from uh, Travis Reynolds. Yeah. Um, he shapes a lot of Tyler Fox's boards and, um, man, they work good. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, he's done really well in the last few years. And I've gotten, I've gotten a couple boards recently from uh, a guy named Kalu Coletta, Steve yeah. Coletta's son. Um, and he shapes some smooth boards, man. He, he shaped me some boards that I took down to Puerto Escondido with me this summer and they worked great. Cool. Yeah. I saw him a day or two ago. Yeah. All right, man. Right on. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah. I r really appreciate it. Um, and anyone out there listening, feel free to get in touch with me. I love uh, love connecting. And what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? You know, I, I actually just got a start a new website called Kyle Surf. I saw that. And from there, you can um, get reach me on all the the uh, usual usual socials. Cool. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Thanks for the good questions. No compromise, but willing to sacrifice. Believe what you want. We have a link to Kyle.surf and Kyle's Instagram and YouTube page, all on surfsplendorpodcast.com. You can also make sure to see the selfies that we snapped during this interview uh, and a little bit of video as well, actually, that I recorded during this interview. 
on our social media pages at Surf Splendor on Instagram and then Facebook.com forward slash Surf Splendor. Of course, remember to go to SurfSplendorPodcast.com and drop a little change in the donation bucket. Be among the first. We've had so many people in recent years say, you know what, if you guys ever donate, I will be the first to donate. Well, there can only be one. Let it be you. Actually, it's probably already taken place, but you can still donate. We'll still accept it. Like I said, click that monthly recurring thing to make sure to, uh, you know, be consistent with it. Keep the show flowing. So thank you for that. That's all the panhandling I will do for this episode. Rest assured, I'll do it again next episode. At any rate, thank you for persevering that. And then also, thank you to Kyle Tierman for participating in this episode. Uh, what a gracious young man and really host, hosted me actually at his home and um, gave me all the time that I needed. So I really appreciate that. feel like the episode benefited from it. And Kyle actually has a podcast that he will be introducing shortly. Hasn't gone live yet, but he has recorded a number of episodes. And so I will make sure to keep you posted on when that gets released. Or just follow him on social and you can find... I'm sure he'll he'll talk about it once it's ready to go. That's all the rambling that I have for this week of Surf Splendor. This is David Scales, your host of Surf Splendor, reminding you just... Above and beyond anything else, get back in the ocean, get a couple waves, and as always, shred on. Always on.